Hello, and welcome to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. The federal government is paying out hundreds of millions of dollars to survivors of the 60s scoop. This is when the government took indigenous kids from their parents and forced them to be adopted by non-native families. Behind closed doors, there was a lot of physical and sexual abuse. We hear from one survivor who tells us her story and explains what else the government needs to do to help with the healing. Last week, we told you about the teenager who was supposed to speak with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau about mental health and addictions. Noah Irvin lost both his parents to these problems, and he wants to see the government create a secretariat to focus on these issues. Well, that phone call did happen this week, and Noah joins us again to tell us about his conversation with the PM. Jagmeet Singh is wrapping up his first week as NDP leader, but would Canadians vote for a federal leader who wears a turban? That's the question posed to people in a new poll, and we'll speak with the Angus Reid Institute about the interesting results. And finally, from taxing marijuana to a committee kerfuffle over abortion, it was a busy week in federal politics. To break it all down, Paul Wells and Megan Campbell join me for this week's McLean's panel. For your politics, for your power, welcome to The Hill. To begin to right the wrongs of this dark and painful chapter. That's Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Carolyn Bennett, who on Friday announced a settlement had been reached with the victims of the 60s scoop. The 60s scoop was a practice that the government had had of taking Indigenous children away from their parents and families and finding a non-Native family to adopt them to. Minister Bennett became emotional when discussing the harm done to those children and the identity confusion they continue to struggle with. The deal will see $750 million paid in compensation to the victims who could receive up to $50,000 each. There will also be $75 million paid out in legal fees and $50 million set aside to create a new center for healing and reconciliation. Now, I was able to speak with one of those victims, Colleen Cardinal, who is the coordinator of the Indigenous Survivors of Child Welfare Network. She tells us about being raised by a foster family, trying to rediscover her identity, and what she thinks of this settlement. Okay, so before we talk about the compensation package and, and, and the settlement, can you just tell me your story? Uh, my sisters and I were taken from my birth parents when I was a month old, and they're both two years older than me. We went through a few foster homes, and then we were finally adopted into a non-Indigenous home in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. You know, I these people, I grew up knowing that these people as mom and dad, and they had their own son, so he was my brother. Um, I didn't question anything, and it wasn't until I was probably my pre-teens where I discovered I was adopted, and that began began my my fantasy of who my my real parents were. Our home was quite traumatic. Like uh, like we had a lot of good things in the home. Like we got to go on a lot of trips, and we did a lot of extracurricular activity. But like behind closed doors, there was a lot of physical and sexual abuse, and. My sisters and I charged our adoptive father for what he did to us, and he had, was ordered to pay restitution to them. Not to me, because I was like uh, I, was, I was quite young at that time, and he never really did anything to me, but he did to my sisters, so he was ordered to pay restitution to them. So we ran away when we were 15 years old, and um, my older sister, Gina, she found our parents out in Edmonton. She went basically downtown looking for them, asking for their... We had found out what their names were, so she was asking around if anybody knew where they, they were. And people knew them downtown, so that's how she found my parents and my family. 
A year after we found our family in 1990, my sister Gina was murdered in downtown Edmonton. Um, she was like the mother for me and my, my sister. She was like our mother. She took care of us. She protected us. So it was a huge loss for us. And she was the one who kind of brought the family together. You know, my, my time out in Edmonton was quite traumatic. And it wasn't until I moved back from Edmonton to Ontario where, where my healing began. I went back to college. And it's the first time in my life I heard about treaties and about residential school and 60 Scoop. And, you know, I started putting the pieces together of what actually happened to my family and to my sisters and I. When you're an adoptee, you grow up thinking that you're the only one because you're so isolated from other Indigenous people. So when you find out there's others out there like yourself, you want to find them because you want to you want to share your story with them. You know, it took a, it took a lot of years to undo the harm of growing up in in a non-indigenous home where racism was prevalent. Prevalent, uh, you know, I, I heard a lot of derogatory things about indigenous people, and I internalized that racism. So it took a lot of years to undo that harm, where I actually am proud of who I am now, and I understand the history and what's happened to my family and to you know, my ancestors through colonization. So part of my responsibility now is to give back and to to help others understand, especially Canadians, because there's a, a tremendous amount of ignorance out there about the true history of Canada through treaty-making and colonization. I can't imagine what it was like for you growing up in an abusive home, starting to figure out that you're different than the family around you as a preteen, I mean, that's that's a time when you're, you're questioning a lot of things anyway. You're growing up. Your mind is changing. Can you tell me what it was like for you when you started to realize that you were different while also going through the regular changes most normal people go through? Oh, my God. Being a teenager is hard enough when you don't have all this extra baggage. You know, I raised four teenagers, and they didn't have all that extra baggage that I did. But feeling like you didn't fit in, and, you know, I spent the better part of my life trying to be a white woman, trying to have blonde hair and look like the people in the magazines because that, that mainstream media really pushes for, you know, for you to fit in, you, you to be accepted. You have to look a certain way. You have to act a certain way. You have to have a job. You have to do all these things and perform. And, and when I stopped doing that performing in my life, that's when things began to change for me. There was, I remember, you know, as a as a teenager walking through the mall with my adopted mom and my sisters, and and I remember asking my adopted mom, like, how come I don't see any Indians around? Like, to me, the image I had in my head of an Indian was somebody who wore what, what we call regalia, but at that time I called it a costume, um, like like a powwow costume, bows and arrows, like that stereotype, right? The Indian on the horse, and that's the stereotype I grew up with. And I wanted to know why no, none of those Indians were at the mall. We never see them anywhere, right? And, and then my adopted mom said to me, you know, well, you're an Indian. And I was so angry at her. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Because everything I grew up knowing about ind- Indigenous people, where they lived in shacks on the reserve, that they were drunks, they were on welfare, like all these awful stereotypes, you know, that and words that I had heard in my adoptive home and in, in, in my my. Um, my non-Indigenous communities, schools and, and books and things like that were all derogatory. So that's where that internalizing of being Indigenous was bad, you know. Um, and because of that environment that you had with your family, you were 
almost racist towards your own race in a way? Um, yeah, well, it's called internalized racism. It's ethno stress, right? So we're conditioned to to hate ourselves and hate other, others like us. So, you know, for the longest time, you know, people would say to me, well, you're not like those other Indians, you know, not realizing how harmful that was, you know, that they were they were being racist towards me by saying that, you know. Because we were raised in, in white middle-class homes, you know, people say to us, really awful things like, well, you're not like those other Indians, and you're so articulate, and, you know, these these weird things that they have to say to us because we don't act a certain way, like we're performing as basically white people with brown skin, you know, and we still deal with that today. Um, it's it's a huge, um, I'd like to say, mind mind game for us, you know, like when I was starting to learn who I was, it's a work to, it was work to me to consciously every day remind myself I am indigenous. I would forget sometimes that I was indigenous. And it wasn't until I experienced racism that I would be slammed back into reality. Holy jeez, people are seeing my skin first, you know. It's a real mind game to, to be raised in a white world, but then present as a, an indigenous person with all the racist stereotypes that are out there. Um, but things are different for me now. Like, I, you know, I've really, I'm, I've really learned a lot about myself. I've done a lot of healing. And, I've, I, you know, part of, part of the healing was um, unlearning those harmful, those harmful stereotypes and, be, and learning the truth of what actually happened to my family and my ancestors and realizing that none of it was our fault. We didn't deserve this, you know, and trying to help other people understand, you know, this is this was created by the government. This is this is this is violence against indigenous people. Like the whole system is violence. So, changing minds is 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 part of the work. So you started a, or you're a part of a network in, mm-hmm. in terms of trying to help people who went through similar mm-hmm. circumstances that, you, that you've gone through. When did the fight start for you when you wanted to help others who were in your situation, but also start to move towards some reconciliation with the government and, and try and get something acknowledged um, by the government and, and some compensation for what happened? I don't think I've ever wanted recognition from the government. What I want is, in a, I, was, I want them to ask me for forgiveness for what they've done. But for me, the fight began, my fight began um, when I started learning about the treaties in college. I took a, a Native Community Worker Addiction Counselor program. And when, they, when I first learned about how the, where the money comes to finance Canada and the, and the resource revenue sharing, I was just blown away. Nobody ever told me that and how our treaties negotiated the, the sharing of the land and resources Nobody knows that. You, you, most Canadians don't know that. Um, that's when the spark was lit for me, that somebody needed to share that. People need to know this. And then finding out there was other adoptees out there like myself was huge. That lit a fire under my, my, my feet to, to get something going. And it started with making a documentary, uh, which I'm still working on. But part of that, that awesome work was meeting other adoptees. Like I met adoptees here in this community, and then we decided to do gatherings, and then building upon that, and more and more. And the more work I do, the more people come and ask for help, or want to share their story, and just need to share their story. You know, this is what happened to me too. They just need validated. You know that what happened to them was okay, 
or wasn't okay or whatever, you know, whatever they need. They just need somebody to listen to them. So what do you think of the of the settlement that was announced? Is this satisfactory for you or does more need to be done? I'm still kind of... I ha- it hasn't really haven't had time to really process, you know. Initially, I'm I was angry because the, the news was leaked, and we were finding out through media instead of like through the minister, which is what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear it from the government, not from the news sites. Um, and the numbers were all mixed up. We didn't even know we were hearing new, uh, the announcement secondhand. So when we actually heard that it was, you know, up to twenty-five or up to fifty thousand, I, I don't know how I feel about it. I, I'm disappointed a little bit, and the, the numbers being so low. But then I'm like, what? What would make me happy? What amount would make me happy? And there's no amount of money that you could put on the losses that we've suffered for our whole lives, right? Like, I wouldn't even know what number to put on that. So initially, right now, I'm going to sit with the with the the amount. I'm more happy and excited about the Healing Foundation, and because that's the work that I'm invested in is healing and wellness and and restor- restoration of culture and language. That's where my heart lies, and I, I think that's what's needed um, for all survivors and for our children. I think what's really important also in the crafting of an apology with survivors that language of asking for forgiveness, but also asking our parents and our extended family for forgiveness because they were impacted too greatly. Like I think about what my mom must have went to through to have her three children taken from her and never hear from them again and not have any legal recourse to get them back. There was no help back then. They didn't invest in the families back then. So, you know, our, our mothers and our fathers are, were grieving too if they're still alive. A lot of them are passed on. Aside from the the apology and the work with the Healing Foundation um, and I guess the settlement that you and others will receive, is there more that needs to be done here? Are there other issues that you want to see addressed by the government? You know, we talk about uh, reconciliation and, and, you know, I think Canadians have just as much responsibility in, in, in taking part in that. But, you know, one of the things we talked about today is child welfare reform and how um, child welfare is, is administered and keeping families together instead of, you know, taking them out, putting them into foreign environments where there's no focus on the family staying together, culture is not brought in there. Like, there there needs to be that kinship um, considered when we're talking about families in in crisis, uh, whether it be addictions or whatever. Family, extended family need to be part of that picture. So when I, th- when I went back to my community a couple years ago, I found out that my grandmother, my Kokom, wanted my sisters and I. And back then, they wouldn't let her raise us because she was too old. And hearing that hurt my heart because I could have been raised in my community with my own people and my family and my language, you know. And maybe I would have been brought up in poverty, but I still would have had my family, you know. And... I don't have that. I have no family right now. My family now is, is the network. You know, all the other adoptees and foster care survivors are my family now. That was Colleen Cardinal, a victim of the 60s scoop, telling us her story and discussing the settlement reached with the federal government. Still to come on the show, we speak with a teenager who had a phone call with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to speak about mental health and addictions. We look at a poll that asks if Canadians would vote for a federal leader who wears a turban. And the McLean's panel weighs in on the major stories from the last week in politics.
Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Coming up on the show, we look at a new poll that could have implications for new NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. And the McLean's panel weighs in on Singh's first week at the helm of the NDP, some pot policies, and Trudeau's trip to Washington and Mexico. But first, last week we told you about the teenager, Noah Irvin who was supposed to speak with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau about mental health and addictions, uh, two issues that are very close to Noah because he lost both of his parents to these problems. Now, he had been calling on the federal government to create a secretariat position that would work with both federal and provincial governments to deal with these very serious issues. Now, that phone call didn't happen last week when it was supposed to. Uh, Noah told us he was disappointed. It got pushed back to this week and we can say now that that phone conversation did take place and joining me on the phone now to talk a little bit more about that is noah irvin thanks very much for joining us thanks for having me on all right so noah um you finally did get the chance to send your message to prime minister justin trudeau what was said in this conversation how long did it last i was a 20 minute phone call thereabouts and uh we talked about the idea of a secretariat and just um informing him about the mixed messages I'm receiving from his cabinet. Those are the two main uh, discussion points. And, and what was his response when you when you pitched the idea of having a secretariat set up uh, to deal with mental health and addictions? Um, did he respond positively, favorably? Did he give you any assurances that something like that might happen? He uh, genuinely uh, seemed pretty interested, and uh, I assume he will take the ideas back to cabinet to discuss, but... Uh, uh, no promises were made, and uh, we'll have to see what happens in the next federal budget. So what are the mixed signals that you're getting from Cabinet? Yeah, so specifically the Minister of Ag uh, wrote me a letter back uh, saying um, thank you for writing us uh, and thank you for your letter describing what you are calling for the federal government to do more on the issues of suicide and um, and. Thank you for describing it as an epidemic, was the gist of it. And the way that it's written, I didn't paraphrase the greatest, but the way it's written uh, gives a pretty questionable sense to, does the government actually think it is a crisis and an epidemic? Which I said to Prime Minister Trudeau, listen, the agriculture minister, yes, doesn't do a lot with mental health, but uh, he still does have to... uh, help farmers who are struggling uh, with their mental health because of poor crop yields in some years. So it is an issue for farmers. It is, it, it is an issue for the Ag Minister, and his letter that he wrote me didn't uh, sound like he really thought it was an issue. And uh, the, the health minister who you did meet with in person, uh, she seemed more receptive to it rather than uh, you know the, the concerns you have with what you heard from the agriculture minister? Absolutely. Um, Jeanette Pettipot-Taylor seemed to address my concerns uh, far better than the Ag Minister did. Did Justin Trudeau tell you anything else aside from, uh, you know, not giving you the assurances but saying that he would take the idea to Cabinet? Well, we talked about his personal uh, relationship with his mother. Obviously, his mother has been fairly candid about her dealings with mental health uh, issues, and um, so he, he related to me on that level, but also... Uh, encouraged me to keep advocating for this. And, and in my opinion, that's kind of the green light to, to keep pressuring members of parliament to uh, 
to respond to my call to action. So that's exactly what I'll do. Have you heard anything from the NDP or the Conservatives? Nothing really from the NDP. The NDP has been exceptionally silent on this when the NDP should be very vocal about this, considering it is it is a very, uh, if you're going to quote it with politics, it's a very left position to, to take um, with increased support and funding for mental health. Uh, the Conservatives, uh, on the other hand, have uh, raised interest about the ideas. Harold Albrecht, um, a member of Parliament in my area, uh, is very interested about what I'm doing, very interested about mental health and addiction services. Andrew Shear, I did receive a letter from him. I would really like to hear his concerns, though, either face-to-face or over the phone. So we'll see if that'll ever happen. And what, what comes next for you now? Uh, aside from just, you know, continually calling, uh, is there anything else you plan on doing to make sure that uh, this issue gets heard? Yeah, well, speaking out in my community, speaking with United Way, Rotary Club, things like that. But also, I have a, I have a new letter going out, hopefully uh, early next week after Thanksgiving. And um, that letter will be going to every uh, provincial minister of health, demanding that they take uh, mental health seriously in their province, for one, but also take the idea of a secretariat right to Ottawa when they meet uh, for their first minister's meeting coming up. That was Noah Irvin, a teenager who spoke with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau about creating a secretariat for mental health and addictions. Still to come, we check out a poll that asks, would you vote for a federal leader who wears a turban? And the McLean's panel discusses Jagmeet Singh, marijuana, and a committee kerfuffle over abortion. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Still to come on the show, the McLean's panel weighs in on a busy week in politics. But first, the NDP's choice of Jagmeet Singh as their new leader, Thomas Mulcair's successor, has given Canadian federal politics its first visible minority party leader for a major party. And the breakthrough moment was heralded by many, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Still, an uncomfortable question looms in the background. How many Canadian voters are ready to truly consider a turban-wearing Sikh as our Prime Minister? Well, a new poll from the Angus Reid Institute probes this timely question, and McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes spoke with pollster Shachi Curl to find out more. Just to get a sort of top-line understanding, what, what's the sort of good news out of this poll for people who think that we should be open-minded and tolerant about whoever wants to be in politics? What would you say is the good news? Well, the good news is that if if we take it from that perspective, and certainly if you're a member of of Jagmeet Singh's uh, inner circle or a strategist or a party member, uh, the good news really is that uh, 7 in 10 in this country see uh, a visible minority as a leader of of a national party as a good thing for Canada overall. And 7 in 10 also say that they would consider voting for a party that was led by someone who looks like Mr. Singh and fits that demographic, demographic profile, a, a turban-wearing Sikh who, wears, who also carries a kirpan. Um, you know, when we talk about diversity, when we talk about visible minorities, when we talk about people of color, you can have, like, Jay Singh, who, you know, has short hair and, and doesn't look that different 
than a lot of other people out there. And you can mm-hmm. have someone like Mr. Jagmeet Singh, who who has embraced his religion and his culture and the tenets of his Sikh faith, but that requires him uh, to have to talk about at times uh, his religion and well, the visible, way he looks when we say visible identity. minorities, you, you don't yeah. get much more visible than the way Jagmeet Singh wears a turban. It, it. it puts <laughs> the capital V in it, absolutely. That's <laughs> Let me ask you then, I've asked you the, the upbeat side of it then. Now, I think I know what you'll say, but what's the sort of cautionary part then? What have people said that, that might make us pause to think about the fact that people are saying, hey, we're open to this? Well, the thing is that saying you're open to something or saying that you support something can sometimes come from a place of wanting to give a socially acceptable answer. So sometimes right. you follow up with another question that takes the response away from the respondent themselves, the person themselves, and puts it out there a little bit just into the ether, into the community. And in this case, we asked a couple of follow-up questions. We asked, okay, so that's you personally, in, in terms of being willing to consider a, a party leader who, who uh, is a turban sick. Uh, what about your friends and family? And at that stage, what we find is half of the people in this country uh, say that some or most of their friends would not be prepared to uh, vote for a party led by an observant sick man. And then when we take it out and say, okay, what about society as a whole? What do you think everyone out there in the Not just your friends and family, but everybody. Not just everybody. Cut everybody. Society, the general population. It gets gets even wider in terms of uh, Canadians saying either most or some people uh, would not be comfortable with that. And, uh, and, and that number, you know, rises up past the 70% mark. So sometimes what happens is those answers can allow us to see a little bit into what people might be thinking, but afraid to profess or they don't pro- want to have associated with them personally. They don't want, they, they don't want right. to think, but they think that this is, there are reservations, there are, there's resistance, there's reluctance in general that maybe in some, at some level they, they themselves, uh, um, share. Shashi, there's been discussion about the particular uh, debate on, on Jagmeet Singh and Quebec, where some members of the Quebec NDP said, hey, Quebec is not going to, Quebec has a tradition of secularism in politics, and they're not going to accept, Quebec voters won't accept a, an observant religious person, a, a, they use the word conspicuous or sometimes even ostentatiously mm-hmm. religious person, as a party leader. What did you find out about the, the public opinion behind that? Well, those statements are not sort of coming out of nowhere in terms of Quebec sentiment. Again, we may find them hard to listen to in different parts of Canada. If you're somebody living uh, in downtown Toronto or downtown Vancouver and you're under the age of 40, you might find statements like that just so difficult to swallow. But among Quebecers themselves and their long history with religion and the state, and their short history with religion and the state. Everything going back from the, from the Quiet Revolution to the conversations about the Quebec Charter of Values to mm-hmm. Bill 62 today, the, the aversion, the allergy that Quebecers have to outward signs, and I have to underscore non-Christian outward signs of religion. Uh, we've done polling on this. Quebecers are fine if you wear a cross or a nun's habit. It's basically everything else that bothers people in, and, and, and a majority of people in that province. And so 
You know, as much as we don't want to talk about identity or where identity may be an uncomfortable or a thorny topic or people may say, oh, it's 2017, we should be getting past these issues. Hey, I'm a person of color. I agree. But at the same time, it is a little bit difficult to have political conversations, especially in certain parts of the country, without talking about identity. And policy, when it comes to the NDP and policy in this in this country, uh, look, the NDP is struggling in Quebec already. It's been a long time since that orange wave came along and people all fell in love with Le Bon Jacques. Mm. I mean, Le Bon Jacques, Jack Layton, is, is long gone. And, uh, and the party has to rebuild and find a way to have conversations uh, with Quebecers that are about more than Mr. Singh's identity. And to his point and to his credit, he said, well, I think we can. I think we align on policy. Uh, but we'll see We'll see what comes. People forget that. They think yeah. of him as a Toronto politician, but, uh, you know, grew up in Quebec, roots in Montreal for his family that go back, uh, all kinds of reasons to think that he might have had traction in Quebec before then. Man, it took a long time. So there are opportunities for uh, for Mr. Singh to make some inroads, uh, provided provided sort of things align in the way that they should. There are also, by the way, outside of Quebec, huge opportunities for him to regain some ground and woo back uh, soft NDP voters who just absolutely stampeded away from then-leader Tom Mulcair in the 2015 election. Will new Canadians, younger Canadians, city-dwelling Canadians say, you know what, Justin, it's been well and we love you and you're cute but you know what this guy is more lovable and more appealing uh that's got to be the concern for justin trudeau right now actually we moved from uh narrow questions to the big big questions about politics and uh, great insight that was mclean's ottawa bureau chief john get us in conversation with shachi curl executive director of the angus reed institute Still to come on the show, the McLean's panel weighs in on Jagmeet Singh's first week of marijuana taxation and policies and a committee kerfuffle over abortion. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. It's now time for the McLean's panel, and joining me this week is Paul Wells, but also we have a newbie here in the office, Megan Campbell. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start off with, uh, I guess, the story that happened last weekend, which was Jagmeet Singh being elected the uh, new leader of the federal NDP. He had his first week, his first caucus meeting, his first scrum with the Ottawa, me- uh, Ottawa media. Paul, how's it looking for Jagmeet? Um I think he had a pretty successful first week. He's charmed uh, just about everybody that he met. Um, he has the beginnings of some answers on some policy questions and, uh, and also some sort of strategic tactical considerations. Is he going to run for a federal seat? Not immediately. Is he ruling out running for a federal seat? No, he's going to consider possibilities as they come up, you know. There was a, an interesting Angus Reid poll that came out that showed that about a third of Canadians would refuse to consider voting for a party led by a guy who wears a turban. That's going to be a problem. A lot of the attention that that poll got uh, had to do with the fact that the, the number who would not consider voting for a guy in a turban is higher in Quebec than elsewhere. But even if you take the lowest figure in that poll, 22%, which happens to be in Saskatchewan, 
Boy, if one voter out of five is is not even going to consider voting for the party because uh, the leader wears a turban, that's a considerable amount of drag on on the party's fortunes and its chances of, of, of electing a lot of uh, members. Now, a poll isn't a, a, a fateful prediction that, you know, it's not the ghost of, of Christmas is yet to come. There's all kinds of ways to change that number, but it suggests the amount of work that uh, Singh and the NDP have to undertake to get people used to, to, to the fact of a, a, a party led by a brown guy and, and to start turning that to their, to their advantage. But I would say that he started off, uh, you know, with quite a successful week. Uh, do you think uh, appointing Guy Caron as his House leader, since he doesn't have a federal seat, will help with the fortunes in Quebec? Or is, it, is the turban too much of a distraction for Quebec voters? I think for the same reason, he's probably wise to stay out of the House of Commons, because it, it's, it's not the center of political action in, in Canada. Uh, Tom Mulcair dominated in the House of Commons and didn't get him very far. For that same reason... Appointing Guy Caron or any other member of the caucus won't, won't make much difference. It will guarantee those of us who follow question period here in Ottawa have a slightly uh, duller day because Guy Caron is not nearly the impressive performer that Tom Mulcair was. But um, the, the real work needs to be done by Singh himself and needs to be done, as he rightfully understands, on the campaign trail starting now. Okay, so let's let's switch topics here because um, marijuana is always a big topic. Everyone wants to hear about the legalization of pot. Uh, but there were a number of developments over the last week or so with uh, the government announcing uh, through its conversation with the premiers at the first minister's meeting that it wanted to do an excise tax, 10% on pot, 10% per gram. That would be split 50-50. The provinces didn't like that. But then we also had the health committee wrapping up its study this week, but before it did that, it made some changes, amendments to the bill, adding edibles uh, for one year after marijuana is legalized. You can now sell edibles, so I guess July 2019. There are a lot of issues that are sort of popping up through the committee as they're looking at this. Megan, does it seem like the government really has its act together and is organized on this pot file, or are there a lot of issues that just seem to be popping up? I'd say that uh, on the edibles specifically, I mean, We've heard from uh, witnesses in Colorado who, who you know, they, they have already legalized uh, edibles in the same way that uh, smokable marijuana was. And, and they said that unless you have that in place off the bat, the black market is going to continue and there's going to be, you know, cookies being sold that actually have like 10 uh, grams worth in, in what should be just one serving. And it gets extremely confusing for uh, shoppers who just want to buy a credible edible. If that's not happening right off the bat, people people are pretty concerned and they just don't understand the logic. And then in terms of the overall picture, uh, the most recent meeting I was at of the committee, they had all three uh, of the relevant ministers, so justice, uh, public safety, and health. And, uh, you know, they really left no questions undodged. They, from the day of the meeting, had uh, 283 days left to uh, develop their plan, and yet there were so many things that they couldn't even really speak to at all. Um, Like what? What were some of the issues they couldn't talk about? So, I mean... Uh, Jeanette Pettipot-Taylor, she was um, asked, say, about children getting their hands on uh, marijuana in the case that uh, their parents are growing plants at home. They don't want, I guess, children growing up in grow-ups. Her response to this was literally, you know, we need to trust Canadians in their homes to keep, you know, harmful substances away from their children. And she said, you know, 
I am certain that Canadians will do the right thing. The opposition was obviously like, you know, I think you're, you're quite naive on, on that topic. Wilson Rabel, so in the justice file, she was asked, say, about the height limits on, uh, on plants uh, in these home-growing situations. And uh, one of the committee med- members brought up that this one-meter height limit was totally arbitrary and that actually it derived from municipal bylaws where many municipalities have a four meter uh, height limit on fences in their backyard in you know in backyards so um, they didn't want neighbors being you know subjected to seeing marijuana plants growing above the the hedge line you could say anyway she really didn't have any response to that she couldn't really say why they've I guess if you will put the fence in offense and I mean they there's going to be a uh, potentially 14-year maximum sentence for anybody who has a 1.5-meter uh, marijuana plant growing. So, again, it seems arbitrary. One other thing was um, Ralph Goodall was asked about uh, what's going to happen at the borders and uh, for Canadians who maybe work at LCBO or in other uh, distributors of, of marijuana, when they get to the border, are they going to have to lie and say, that no, they don't? participate in the selling of marijuana um, because they're going to be guilty of of federal crimes. So basically, if the ministers are the message, then this testimony of all three of them kind of casts this whole of government doubt. All right. And I want to stick on the committee issue because there was a big committee kerfuffle, if you will, uh, with Rachel Harder and the Status of Women Committee. She was chosen by the Conservatives to be the chair of that committee, which is the tradition normally it's uh, since it is uh, uh, one of the committees where the opposition gets to choose the chair. Uh, but the other MPs seem to gang up and, and try and oust her from that position or stop her from getting that position. What, what exactly happened? There. Yeah, so just to give a bit of context, uh, last week on Tuesday, she was nominated uh, to be the chair. She she is only one of two conservative women on the committee, and um, the chair has to go to a conservative. So she was nominated, and the other members walked out of the meeting in protest. The next Tuesday, they were to resume where they left off, I guess, and uh, everybody kind of knew what was about to happen, but Rachel Harder had to sit through the process. So it was kind of this interesting and sad little scenario where, you know, the clerk put forth the, brought forth the motion, you know, to elect uh, Rachel Harder as chair, and she was sitting directly across from her opponents and just one after one after you know no after no after no she had to kind of hear them all all turn her down and uh the other uh, conservative woman on the committee karen vecchio got uh nominated and elected against her will which was quite interesting but i i thought it was sort of worth picking apart the logic uh of the the opponents to Rachel Harder. They were saying that, you know, she cannot possibly represent the Status of Women Committee because she has come out as uh, opposed to abortion. It's not necessarily clear how that would affect her being chairwoman. And uh, Marilyn Gladue, the, the past chair of the committee for one and a half years, was, you know, she spoke at the National March of Life and uh, I guess she was... Uh, 
She's held similar views. Held, yeah. held similar views, but not been as outspoken, perhaps, about it. Uh, but either way, the NDP would say that they were very happy with her performance as chair. So it's also worth noting that the, that it might have actually been beneficial to the committee if they were talking about topics of abortion, not to have uh, Rachel Harder voting. And if she was chair, uh, she wouldn't have had that, that power to vote, except mm -hmm. in a few rare, rare circumstances. So it seems that just aside from the logic, people on the committee just couldn't swallow being chaired by this kind of Mrs. Irony. <laughs> and and, and the, the argument back and forth is uh, from the liberals, they say they're standing up for women's rights, while on the opposite side, uh, others are saying this is an a, attack on freedom of choice, on democracy. Uh, Paul, what do you think? Which one is it? It's both, Cormac. Um, each party is playing to its client base. Um, the conservatives uh, pretty much have a monopoly on the pro-life vote in, the, in, in Canada these days. And the Liberals are um, uh, trying to establish themselves as the most staunchly and actively feminist party uh, in the country. And so uh, I, I think this issue will polarize pretty much exactly according to the voter preference for the two main parties. Conservatives will uh, uh, pick up the pro-life vote or consolidate the pro-life vote, and Liberals will consolidate the progressive vote. Um, as on so many issues, that leaves it, it leaves the NDP a little bit out in the cold. But it's to the interest of both the Conservatives and the Liberals to polarize on this issue. All right, and then finally, next week, Trudeau is heading out to Washington and Mexico City. This just happens to come at the time when we're going to be launching the fourth round of negotiations for NAFTA. Yeah. Uh, some of the most contentious issues are still on the table, and expected. Uh, that's what's expected to come up is some of those contentious issues right off the bat. Uh, Paul, what do you think the message uh, Trudeau is going to have for both Donald Trump and Enrique Peña Nieto? Um, there's going to be a little bit of coordinating with Mexico because Canada and Mexico, while both um, uh, essentially defenders uh, on this file, they both want NAFTA to continue and would prefer that it continue more or less uh, uh, unamended. Their reaction to specific provocations from the American side has been a little different, with the Mexicans frankly tending to be a little bit more uh, outspoken and emotional in their response and the Canadians trying to be cool and tactical. So I think he's probably going to, with, with the Mexican president, he's going to try and sort of uh, tune up the string section and make sure that, 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 that we're singing a little bit more of the same tune. With Donald Trump, he's going to remind him that the Americans have no real trade dispute with Canada, that the NAFTA issue is not a Canadian issue, and that uh, swiping at Canada is not helpful even by, from the American perspective. And secondly, he's going to continue to work the personal relationship. There's real affection. I, I, I wouldn't hazard to guess whether it's mutual affection, but there seems to be real affection from the president towards the prime minister. And uh, so a little laying on of hands uh, might, uh, might make things run a little more smoothly in the negotiations for a while. I'm told that on narrow technical subjects, the kind of things that don't make headlines, the negotiations are actually going quite well. But uh, the Canadians and the Mexicans are still waiting for the Americans to come up with concrete proposals on rules of origin, how much American stuff has to be in NAFTA products, uh, on the explosive issue of a, Sundance clause, a sundown clause, which would be a sunset clause, let me try on the third, on the third attempt, uh, which would be a, uh, a, a constant rolling deadline to negate the whole treaty at any point every five years, which would essentially destroy the reason for having a NAFTA, which is to provide certainty in trade relationships. On those issues which Donald Trump keeps mentioning, uh, and uh, which his negotiators have not yet presented positions on, uh, any one of those issues could essentially destroy NAFTA, 
right there at the bargaining table. And I think uh, Justin Trudeau is going to try and preempt any uh, fancy thoughts the Americans might have along those lines. All right, thank you very much, Paul Wells, Megan Campbell, and that's a McLean's panel. Well, that's it for this week's episode. For more of your politics and power, join us next week on The Hill.